Well, hello and uh, welcome to this week's IC Companies and Markets podcast. Uh, my name is Mark Robinson and the absence of uh, Estuary English will probably tell you that our sainted editor, John Human, is away on holiday at the moment, selling himself somewhere in Essex and I'm filling in as best I can. As ever, we're joined by our editor, our news editor, Bradley Gerard. Afternoon. Good afternoon. And we'll be talking a little later on to Emma Powell, who's the author of this week's uh, main feature, which is on the uh, current low interest rate environment and the implications it has for the UK economy as a whole. But first, I'd like to uh, start with Brad. And um, there's a couple of uh, stories in this week's magazine that highlights the issue of shareholder activism, which is uh, running up the poll lately. The first concerns uh, Berkeley Group and uh, ShareSock. Yeah, exactly. Um, ShareSock is um, a pretty well-known um, sort of, I guess they're a corporate governance kind of watchdog, if you were. They um, they highlight things that they perceive as issues for private investors. And um, yeah, they've taken issue with Berkeley Group's long-term incentive plan. Uh, Berkeley Group's a London-focused house builder, and actually it shares since the long-term incentive plan was introduced in 2011, have actually trebled from £8 to £27. So the shares have done really, really well. But that does mean that the payout to the executive is likely to be about £400 million, which ShareSock describes as excessive. They say really that, you know, while it might be too late to do anything about the decision, there is an advisory vote on the 6th of September and they're urging shareholders to express their disquiet because that's about all they can do, really. Yeah, there's there's no talk of a cap or anything like that at this stage. No, there's no real point of, um, there's no real sort of talk of anything necessarily happening, even if all the shareholders voted against it. It's, it's purely advisory. So maybe if that did happen, the company might sort of take a look at the remuneration policy um, in future years. But in the here and now, it looks like that will be the payout. And, um, yeah, ShareSock um, you know, doesn't think it's very excessive is their word, and I guess that's the, that's the best way to put it. Well, there's been a few um, examples, instances of this type of uh, rebellion over the last year or so, but there's limited uh, scope for um, activism on this part. I mean, there has been changes to central government legislation, which are more favourable for sh- shareholders, but... Uh, Again, it's a it's a vexed issue, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that, no doubt. Uh, the second one relates to uh, the proposed uh, Sab Miller takeover as well. What was the what was the story there? Yeah, so this was um, there's a lot of moving parts to this, and um, uh, there is there's only a sort of 150 word nib in the magazine, but it's um, you could probably write several column inches on it. Effectively, what happened is after the referendum, the uh, obviously the value of sterling plummeted a lot, and what that led to was that there were two options for shareholders um, of Sab Miller, although. Really, there are, there's only one in, in effect because one is being offered to two of its largest shareholders only yeah. and the other has been offered to uh, minority shareholders which make up about 59% of the sort of of the entire share capital. So because Sterling fell, the cash offer, which the minority shareholders are being offered, worked out about 15% less in value than the partial cash and shares offer yeah. that Sab's two largest shareholders, Altria, which is a US tobacco company, and Bevco, are going to get. So basically, um, Elliot's advisors, who um, a name which has been mentioned several weeks in a row, I think, on this podcast and on the subject of activism, they actually bought some shares and agitated for an improved offer. And Aberdeen Asset Management, which is already a Sab Miller shareholder, did the same. And um, um, what happened was that there was an improved bid offer from Anheuser-Busch InBev, but even in spite of that, actually Aberdeen still says that that is still unsatisfactory, and they're, they're, um, it's understood they're going to probably even still vote against the improved offer. But you know, an improved offer was made by Anheuser to kind of make up some of the loss of value of the cash offer. And so, yeah, we'll see. There's um, uh, an investors meeting on the 28th of September, I believe, and yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. 
Well, I guess this um, highlights the, the, the central issue uh, behind a lot of these uh, uh, moves in shareholder activism is that you've got to worry and wonder what, about the incentives themselves. I mean, are, are most of these things designed to, to help minority holders? I, I think not. A lot of them is, are, are just related to the fact that uh, pressure groups want to either uh, increase their influence at, uh, at the board level or increase returns as well, which may or, or may not be in the best interest of uh, the company itself. Potentially so, although I mean Aberdeen has said that you know even if Anheuser walked away, it would remain an investor in Sab Miller. It's been an investor in the company for a long time. It would continue to do so. It sees it as a um, a very diversified, um, good long term holding for a diversified portfolio. Elliott Advisors. I mean, yes, this this purchase looks a bit more opportunistic. They saw an opportunity to buy some shares and agitate for a better offer. I mean, it, it's unclear whether they will sell instantly if they get a better offer or not. But I suppose at least what has happened, and the, the kind of latest development, which is what the latest story is about, is the fact that the two sets of shareholders will get a separate vote so the two biggest shareholders will have one vote and the remaining minority shareholders will have a, a vote of their own so in a way the sort of activism has at least led to that and so it will yeah. re- you, we, yeah. we will really be able to see how many minority shareholders are supportive okay you, you alluded to the um, eu referendum decision there as well and that leads us on to uh, the spotlight piece for this week which was penned by harriet russell looking at July's retail figures. Uh, so what's the main takeaway from that? Yeah, I mean, these retail figures for July were um, jumped on by the press quite a lot because obviously they were, they were pretty positive, which people are, you know, people are looking for any positive news post, uh, post the referendum vote. And they were decent numbers. So the volume of retail sales um, increased by 5.9% in July um, this year compared with July last year. There are a couple of factors which potentially massage that. Obviously, the weakness in sterling, um, may have encouraged more overseas shoppers to spend more money, which is the main one, and and, and tourism as well, because the sterling's fallen. The level of tourism this July may have been greater than that last July. But there was also a rise month on month, so that's, that's also a positive figure. And then there's been an increase as well in, in the, the stock of consumer credit too, or so I learned this morning. Um, it just un- underlines the fact that, you know, there's obviously going to be some knock-on effects uh, resulting from the Brexit vote. But it's, it's far too early, really, to, to make any um, you know, definitive judgment on that. Uh, you know, across the economy, we've seen a devaluation of sterling, uh, further interest, well, further weakness in uh, interest rates, which we'll get on to in a, a moment. But I think it's the general message is, is this is going to take months, if not years, to filter through the system. Absolutely, and for every bit of good news, you know, there's some some news on the counter. I mean, sort of uh, another, another piece in seven days was the fact that the manufacturing data in August... You know, it was it was better than expected, but basically the CBI does this index whereby it shows that the order book was down minus five percent. It was expected to be down minus ten percent, so it's much better than experts were expecting it to be. You can't look at any of the. I mean, no, I see what you mean, but that you you really can't look at any of these things in isolation because no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I mean, for the retail sales being positive and people jumping on that, then you've got you know, manufacturing orders, yes, better than expected, but still negative. And while exports were up, they reached a two-year high in terms of their reading in this CBI metric but that was minus 6% so there's still a long way for you know people often say with a weaker sterling oh that's going to see exports shoot up they have risen that, that that's true but we're still in sort of negative territory as it were well that's right and there, there was um there was other data out this week from uh, Barber, which is a uh, construction consultancy which uh, provides data for the uh, Office of National Statistics, um, showing there was a 20% fall away in a UK infrastructure spending during uh, the month of July, the first month after the vote. And yet at the same time, spending for commercial lets, industrial construction, that sort of soared away through the month as well. So 
you know, the, the, the data, if not anomalous, is fairly meaningless in isolation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, it is one piece of data. It's um, for a month that's you know known for its promotional sort of season within the retail sector. Um, you know, tourism is going to be higher in the summer. So there are a few sort of factors that potentially massage the figures. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess for a more sort of slightly domestic story on post-Brexit, um, the, the Kantar World Panel data was out, uh, which looks at sort of supermarket market share. And Tesco sort of came out pretty well, actually. Um, the sales decline there slowed to 0.4% in the 12 weeks to the 12th of August. It's apparently the slowest rate of decline in six months. And it's... it's de- that, that's how progress is being judged nowadays, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's share decline in the, in the market um, that also continued to moderate. So uh, Tesco had a good week this week on the back of that data and... Um, Coming back to it goes to the more broader picture. I mean, there are sort of people now that are sort of saying that the fall in average store prices across the whole retail sector, while prices are falling, they, they, it looks like they're kind of bottoming bottoming out, and we might be starting to see a bit more kind of actual inflation coming, sort of more domestic sure. inflation kind of baking into the economy. I mean, that's a difficult one to call anyway because there are actually agricultural hedges built into that as well. Yeah, and it rather depends uh, how how much we're going to start importing from uh, the rest of the world as well. I mean, everything is down to the the eventual shape of the uh, the trade deal that we we strike with the EU and uh, other major trading partners, but that's somewhere down the road. There's another interesting piece in this week's uh, news section as well, and it's on the gold silver ratio. I'm finding it very difficult to segue into this, given the, given that I wrote it. <laughs> but um, I think it was instructive because Alex, our colleague Alex Newman, has uh, written extensively about the gold price of late, and it's um, performed very well during this year. It's recovered a lot of the value that it had uh, fallen over the last year and a half well a fair portion at any rate it's up by about 26 percent so far this year and yet by comparison uh, silver has been a relative laggard i mean it's pretty much flat through uh, much of this year and so it's 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 a metric that we uh, include in the magazine uh, periodically uh, and it's it's well known uh, throughout the mining industry now whether um investors actually use it as a trigger for uh, decisions uh, i don't know but it's worth looking at and basically you're looking at how many ounces of silver it would take to buy an ounce of gold and uh, this is sort of the average has uh, differed uh, wildly over the last 120 years it used to be i mean at the moment it stands at 71 uh, but there was a there was a time and and, the, and i think the average is about 63 over the last five years but there was a time when the average was uh, closer to 18 19 20 and that was during the period when uh, silver was actually being used in a lot of coinage uh, throughout the world as well and so you get, got a better indication and anyway um i, I just put this together this week which um it's it's on the high side at the moment which, which generally generally speaking favors uh silver Silver's looking a, a probably a better bet than gold at the present time. I guess as well. I mean, as you as you kind of say in the piece, although um, you know, gold's had a long a long sort of rally or a strong rally this year, one might argue it's still not necessarily overvalued. But I guess investors sort of reading this and thinking, well, what should one do? I mean, if you're invested in a gold ETF, one, one could possibly put some well, of that into a silver ETF well, and well, balance that's right. out. I mean, it's, it's, a rel- it's a relative measure as well. It, it doesn't tell you anything in absolute terms. I mean, you know, what is the, the real gold price? You know, pick a number, any number really. But um, it, it does give you an indication about how one metal is performing against the other. And th- there's a lag effect as well. Gold tends to react. They, they move in the same direction, obviously. You know, they're correlated in that regard. But the trajectory of the movement uh, differs from time to time. 
And so there's opportunities there for investors or not investors so much as traders, you know, to get in uh, on the many contracts uh, that are available. And actually, I just without giving the whole game away here, I, I talk about uh, how the uh, the increased trade in uh, ETFs, supposedly physically backed paper contracts is, uh, well, many people believe is distorting the market at the moment and is actually depressing uh, the gold price artificially. But I won't go into too uh, much detail here because I'm. Uh, I think I think our other correspondent is about to fall asleep, uh, and that uh, brings us on to this week's cover feature, which has been uh, written by uh, Emma Powell. Emma, if I could bring you in here, uh, why has the uh, the Bank of England decided to to cut interest rates again? Well, the idea is is that they want to get people spending, um, they want to get people borrowing from banks and building societies, so consumers and you know obviously other businesses, and it's it's really to protect economic growth and and even give it a boost, I guess. This isn't without risks, obviously. No, no, no. I mean, of, of course not. And very much the feature is a, um, we look at the sectors that we think will be most affected. So either could benefit or could be damaged by it. And if you talk about risks, well, two sectors really spring to mind. And these would th- those would be the banking sector and insurers. We've spoken a lot about a lot of the issues that and a lot of the problems that banks are kind of having at the moment. And um, low interest rates obviously exacerbate those in terms of the amount of interest that they can charge on kind of long term loans that becomes squeezed. And we've talked before about squeezing of the net interest margin. But there's I mean, there's other issues, too, with banks um, relating to their structural hedge. And that'll be that they try and hedge out interest rate fluctuations by investing in interest rate swaps, things like that. But but what actually happens is when interest rates become even lower, it can damage the amount of structural hedge income that they receive. Okay. I mean, how that happens is that as the structural hedge kind of rolls off, it'll roll off onto swaps that'll have to buy again at currently lower interest rates. So the idea is, is that banks with a longer structural hedge are more protected than ones with a shorter structural hedge and duration and also the ones that have obviously a lower lower amount of structural hedging in place will also be will also benefit more and uh, what about the insurance insurers as well because that's a, a sector you're more than familiar with yeah obviously for insurers i mean they back their liabilities with their long-term promises with gilt so obviously as gilt yields fall and, and they've really dropped through the floor, the value of their liabilities increases, which is a problem. But secondly, there's also the issue of you know you know the money that they hold for, for you know the, the premiums that they take. They then have to invest that money, obviously you know. Um, so if part of that is in fixed income, the value of that can also decrease. Okay, and so they're getting lower returns themselves as well. Exactly, whilst the value of their liabilities is also increasing. And some of our uh, readers also may have noticed that uh, th- their pensions have become uh, effectively less valuable, or at, or at least the companies holding those pensions have seen um, the deficit swell. Yeah, I mean, there's two issues. Obviously, if I'm if I'm trying to buy an annuity at the moment, then obviously annuity rates are falling. But if you but if you look at it from a from a sponsor, from an employer's point of view, they've made a promise under defined benefit arrangement to pay out a certain amount based on an employee's age and tenure, that kind of thing. So they, you know, it's actually very rare to find a corporate pension scheme that's fully funded. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of them have huge deficits. And when they have, you have fallen gilt yields, the value of their pension scheme deficit increases again. So it's a big problem for employers. How do they fund these pension schemes, which they've, which they've got to fund? Uh, well, I mean, you, you've highlighted the insurers there and the problems they face, but there are some sectors that could potentially benefit from uh, the current rate environment. Yeah, so so there are a few. Um, I mean, property, things like house builders. Yeah, as I mentioned, one of the reasons that the Bank of England kind of cut interest rates was that they want to they want to stimulate borrowing. Yeah. So the idea is is that people will be inspired to to take out mortgages, which will be good for house builders. We think. There's also um, a commodities piece, which, which Alex Newman wrote, where he kind of describes that in theory, low rates are good because it basically balances or pairs back the oversupply that's currently being experienced and which has kind of damaged commodities prices. Yeah. But actually, he also mentions that the caveat for that, you shouldn't quite overplay it because we still do have big problems with Chinese demand and, and oversupply. That's right. Um Okay, I mean, a lot of this has been laid at the door of uh, the June's uh, June's EU referendum uh, vote, but uh, this there were there was pressures even prior to that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, real rates, which is kind of interest rates without the inflationary with that taken out, real rates have actually been falling since the 1990s, and there's a few issues around that. A savings glut, so people saving too much and not <laughs> spending enough. That's globally um, slow down. Not in down. the UK, though. Not, not in the UK. Germany, actually, okay. is a big one for that. They've got a big history of uh, saving. Um, a slowdown in world trade. Again, this is going back decades. So there's bigger structural trends than just the referendum. Secular stagnation, is that? Well, listen, it's a great piece this week, Emma. Thanks very much for uh, coming. I mean, there's a lot more to it than this. I mean, we, we could go on for weeks and months, but we'll be covering it in some detail in the magazine uh, in the future as well. Okay, there's been some interesting uh, results out this week. Uh, Speaking of interest rates, Emma, uh, you covered uh, Persimmon this week as well. How how are they getting on? Well, they had very good results, actually. It's a buy tip of ours. It's up on our buy tip. Yeah, I was speaking to um, the chief finance officer earlier this week, and he was just talking about how uncertainty is obviously post-referendum a big factor. They've um, historically, um, so between 2012, 2015, been reinvesting in land at a rate of about 1.7 times that which they've been selling. Mm -hmm. So heavy investment. But he was saying that actually during the first half of the year, they were just replacing what they'd sold so they've they've stepped that back a bit and also during the second half that it all the the kind of uncertainty might result in them dialing back again so so that that implies that they think that land values may fall at some point I mean, potentially, I think they're just trying, they're just taking a very cautious approach because, as you mentioned, nobody really knows. You know, we can say that, you know, low interest rates would be good for mortgages and things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. But they benefited as well from things like selling sales prices going up, particularly for their premium brands. So, you know, that did that did push through a boost in profit. And I suppose it's worth mentioning, you know, there's something of a disconnect between uh, new build properties and the uh, the secondary market and housing at the, at the present time as well. Um, Bradley, you, you've covered a few companies again this week, one of which is uh, Paddy Power Betfair. Has it been a happy marriage thus far? 
It certainly looks so. I mean, the, the reported um, sort of pre-tax profit figures are pushed out by the um, £195 million of costs that were effectively the result of the, the merger. So um, you won't see those costs again. And, and what is good and what the, the company was obviously keen to highlight and the number of brokers picked up as well was that management will now realise um, £65 million of cost synergies and it will do so a year earlier than planned. And that £65 million figure is actually slightly up on what they had hoped when they first proposed the deal. So... There were some very good um, numbers at Paddy Power, but fair. we have it on a hold, partly just because the ratings are about 32 times at the moment. So It's a sector in flux at the moment. It really is. There's an awful, there has been an awful lot going on, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, if, if you're invested in it, it's a it's a, a great stock, and it's a Goliath in the gaming sector now, and um, you know, the, sort of, the cash flow is, is fantastic. So if you're in, I'd certainly stay in, and if you aren't put off by the uh, rating, then out of all the gambling companies, I mean, it's just, you know it's a very strong online proposition very strong retail uh, franchise of shops um so yeah it's, it's a very interesting stock and so far it looks like the merger has been a sensible move and a related uh, measure as well we, we're quite sweet on uh, rank group too yeah we are so rank group kind of which people may know better through its uh, brands like grosvenor um, casinos and mecca bingo um that's actually one of our um, a fairly long-standing buy tip i think as well and yeah, they had another good uh, set of results. I mean, they, they didn't have the sort of blockbuster deal to announce or to talk about. Obviously, they uh, themselves and 888 had tried to uh, buy William Hill, but um, the latter spurned the duo's advances. But yeah, I mean, there are some good sort of um, organic um, you know, things for the company to focus on. Grosvenor Casinos was a bit stronger performing the mecca but um you know there's some good investment in the businesses they're you know, re- refurbishing some of their sites they're building new ones they've got you know pretty low net debt they're not that indebted so all in all yeah it's um, it's, it's a good stock that we continue to favor and like most of their clientele no doubt <laughs> i won't comment on that <laughs> but yeah it's, it's, it seems to be on a decent rating and um yeah solid company well, elsewhere uh, during the results period as well, there was a lot of um, a number of uh, resource uh, companies that reported this week, not least of which uh, Glencore uh, and Alex Nunes have been taking a look at their uh, restructuring program, how that how that's been getting on as well. Uh, also, Premier Oil, it's a, a favourite uh, amongst uh, IC readers, uh, long-suffering IC readers. And again, they're, they're looking uh, at uh, a restructuring, this time in terms of their debt too. Uh, elsewhere... Thorin Mohammed has been looking at WPP, whose results this week uh, ended up projecting the WPP's shares to an all-time high, so I believe. Other than that, in the magazine, we've got uh, James Norrington with an article on how to pinpoint risk. Nicole Elliott, our trader, has been asking what is an acceptable level of inflation. Chris Dillow delivers a usually erudite piece on uh, volatility in markets. And Megan Boxall has been looking at the uh, diagnostics market. Well, that's about it uh, for this week. Uh, hopefully, unless uh, John's done a Reggie Perrin, he'll be back in next week. But until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.